0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikel Thorpe and this is the Expat Money Show. Today is episode 250. Holy moly. Can you believe 250 episodes of the program? When I started this back about seven years ago, I had no idea which direction it would go. I didn't know that we'd have millions of people listening to the program and the entire business that has been built on the back end of this show. But I knew that this was an important topic, and I knew that these were things that needed to be discussed, and And I feel so grateful and so blessed to be doing this work. So what I want to do today is record an episode kind of about the greatest hits. These are some of our bigger name guests who have been on the show. This is not necessarily the best of 250 episodes, but more, you know, some of the bigger names that we've had on the show, some of the memorable things from the early days, and give homage to some of those episodes. So what we're going to be doing is I've got a number of clips that I want to play for you, and I'm going to tee them up. And I think that keep in mind, a lot of these are from five, six, seven years ago, some of these clips. And I want you to realize how on point our guests were, and the direction that the world has taken since a lot of these things. You know, a lot of people really called out what was happening. And then I think that we need to give credit where credit is due. So our first clip is with my very good friend Doug Casey. This was our first recording that we ever did together about five years ago. Since then, Doug and I have become fast friends. I've been down to Uruguay to visit him a couple of times. I've been over to his house. We have had dinner and smoked cigars together on many occasions and many group phone calls and phone calls and interviews and conferences and lots of things over the last five or six years with him. So I feel very lucky that Doug has been generous with his time and really taught me a lot of things. Doug has also agreed to be a speaker at this year's Expat Money Summit, which I am really thrilled for. We will be welcoming him back this year. So that is going to be a lot of fun. You guys can pick up a free ticket to this year's summit, which will be held in October online at expatmoneysummit.com, expatmoneysummit.com. Okay, let's jump in with this clip on how sociopaths use crises to seize power. This is Doug Casey.
1: So generally, when there's a big upset in society, it's an opportunity for uh, the sociopaths, who tend to be the most ruthless people by definition, to take over, and they make things worse. So I'm not too optimistic about the future. I don't see that the growth of the police state is going to stop anywhere. I mean, you need government ID in order to travel, which didn't used to be the case, and it's uh, become much more sophisticated. You know, um, it wasn't so long ago, my friend Barry Reed, who uh, publishes Eden Underground Press, I don't know if you're familiar
0: with that or not, I, that one I don't know, but I'm writing his name down right now so I can go learn more.
1: Yeah, so Barry's had to serve a couple of stints in federal prison for various offenses. He's a solid, libertarian, ethical guy, good guy, but he he's violated laws. And uh, he wrote a book called The Paper Trip back in the 1970s which was about how you could establish a second identification, a second identity, get a second or a third or a fourth passport from uh, the U.S. or any other country. Uh, it was possible to do those things back then, quite simply by taking the paper trip. But now, with the way computers work and eye scans and fingerprints, which many countries require, Uh, when you enter or leave them, your options are much more limited.
0: So this week I've been reading a couple of books by James Rickards, um, and he talks about us returning to the gold standard in one of his books. Do you think that's a possibility? Do you think that's something that would ever end up happening to us?
1: Uh, I think it's it's almost inevitable. And the reason for that is that all of these paper currencies issued by all these governments are going to reach their intrinsic value sometime over the next generation. It's long overdue because idiotic effort to fight the um, economic recessions, it's going to be a a nasty depression, much worse than a recession that these governments have created. What they do is they print up trillions and trillions of currency units. And um, that's going to destroy the value of the dollar and all other currencies, because frankly, most other currencies are backed by the dollar. It's the major asset of most, most central banks around the world. So if people are going to deal with each other, are they going to want to use the unsecured liability of a, of a, a uh, irresponsible government? Uh, no, I think that the world is going to go back to gold. It's the ideal medium of exchange and store of value. And one thing that makes me more uh, confident of that is the rise of cryptocurrencies, which have drawn the attention uh, of especially the younger generations uh, to the problems with the dollar. Uh, a lot of young people are calling the dollar a fiat currency, which it is, of course. Uh, it's made out of nothing. Now, and, and, of course, they're, they're using cryptocurrencies. I was a late adopter of them. Not too late, though, I've got to say. And I, I'm good at selling. So I got out in actually January of last year.
0: That was a fantastic time to get out.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it was. But I'm looking to uh, get back in to some of these small, new, innovative currencies that might have specialty uses. Listen, I don't even use a cell phone for a number of reasons. So I've, I've got somebody that does that for me that is competent with doing those things. And I've got really good people to stay on top of this type of thing that advise me. You, you just can't kiss all the girls. You can't stay on top of everything. You can't pretend to be an expert in everything.
0: I agree with you there. So when – just going back to the gold quickly – when I was doing my research on gold it seems like countries like Russia and China are buying up as much physical gold as they can possibly get and pretty much depressing the prices of it artificially so that they can get it at a good rate and it seems that it's almost like a, a hedge against the inflation of the United States of the dollar
1: well I don't think they're uh, you know I yes I agree with that uh, that is what's happening in point of fact but uh, Russia and China are not depressing the price of gold, because you really can't do that when you're buying. You know, there's a group, nice people, called GATA, and uh, they believe that the U.S. government is suppressing the price of gold. It's a silly argument from many points of view, uh, not least of which that it would play right into the hands of the Russians and Chinese who are the major buyers of gold in the world. But I think gold is the best place to be in the world's financial markets. Right now, everything else is in a bubble. Bonds are in a hyper bubble. Uh, stocks are in a bubble. Real estate, which floats on a sea of debt, at these artificially low interest rates that the governments have been able to engineer, is also a bubble. So that uh, the best place to be is, is commodities in general and gold in particular. But there's risk because with all the debt in the world, I don't think anybody knows how much there actually is, perhaps $200 trillion, not counting contingent liabilities and so forth, we could have a credit collapse. In other words, trillions of dollars of that debt could be wiped out overnight, which means that the remaining dollars would be worth more. So uh, it's a very unstable situation we're in right now.
0: Our next clip is by my friend John Perkins. John first came on the podcast in episode 71 and has since come back on the program a couple of times as well as spoken at our conferences as well. Hopefully, we'll be able to get him a speaker again this year at the expatmoneysummit.com, but we'll have to see about that one. Enjoy this clip on how John Perkins describes his life as a new economic hitman and how he would help global governments and mega corporations entrap third-world countries in bad economic deals.
2: And my real job was that of an economic hitman, and that was to identify countries with resources our corporations covet, like oil, arrange huge loans to those countries from the World Bank or one of its sister organizations. The money never actually went to the country. Uh, The money would go directly to American corporations, uh, primarily engineering firms like Bechtel, Halliburton, Brown and Root, and Webster, my own company, Charles T Main. Uh, General Electric, Westinghouse, to build big infrastructure projects in these countries that made our corporations very wealthy. They made huge profits and helped a few rich people in the country, people who owned industry and commerce, because they benefited from more electricity, better highways, better ports, the things that we built. But the rest of the country suffered. The majority of the people uh, lost out because money was diverted from health, education, and other social services to pay the interest on the debt. And in the end, the principal could never be bought down. That was part of the plan. So we'd go back and say, hey, you can't pay your debts, so sell your resource. Oil or whatever, real cheap to our corporations without environmental or social regulations, or let us build a military base on your soil. Vote with us on the next United Nations vote against Cuba or some such thing. These things that we call conditionalities. And I have to say, Mikhail, that it was fairly easy to convince leaders of countries to accept these deals because, first of all, they and their cronies benefited from them, the, the, the wealthy people, the people around the country. But also, they knew that if they didn't accept the deals, people we call the jackals would go in and either overthrow them or assassinate them. And unfortunately, there's a long record of people like uh, Mossadegh in Iran minister of Iran, democratically elected, and democratically elected president of Chile, Allende, and Arbenz, and Guatemala, and Lumumba, the Congo, and Ziemba, Vietnam, and on and on. There's a very long list of, of these countries that didn't play this game and were taken out by what we call jackals. And that's basically the story in a nutshell.
0: <laughs> well, and I was reading, when I was reading your book, a couple of the stories that really came through were the Hamir Rados and Omar Tarijos. Like, those are some pretty chilling stories the way that you describe them in the book.
2: Well, they were chilling. Uh, this was, Jaime mean, Roldos was the democratically elected president of, of Ecuador, um, and uh, Omar Torrijos, the head of the state of Panama. They were both clients of mine, and I liked them a lot. I respected them. They both were men with great integrity that would not buy into these deals. I particularly got to be very good friends with Torrijos, with uh, uh, a very charismatic leader. Of Panama, and also someone who was making a name for himself around the world because he was standing up to the United States. He was insisting that the United States turn now over to Panama, which ultimately Jimmy Carter, President Carter, agreed to do. But in the process, Torrijos became an, uh, an international figure because here was a guy, you know, David from a little country, Panama, standing up to the Goliath of the world's one of the world's superpowers, the United States, and succeeding and he also stood up for the rights of people all over the world, those people. Um, and both of these men were my clients. Uh, both of them refused to accept these deals that would put their countries in jeopardy. And both of them uh, died in uh, the private plane crashes, were two months apart from each other, uh, and all the other deaths, including tests on some of the engines that were done by a Swiss laboratory Indicated that these planes, these were not accidents. These planes had been set to to crash.
0: So, how does that work then? Because, so you said you ended up being quite close friends with them, but see, so you went in to entice them to do something, and they didn't end up doing it. But you still ended up becoming friends with them. How did that work?
2: Well, it was it was a difficult situation for me. Uh, um, First of all, let me say that. The job I was doing, I thought was good. I'd come out of the peace Corps. I was very idealistic. But in business school, and according to all the World Bank models, uh, the way to help a poor country is to invest heavily in these big infrastructure projects, which is what we were doing. And statistically, you can show that that works. So when you put a lot of money into a huge electrical system, uh, generating plants, distribution, transmission systems—you can show it shows that over the, over the next years, after that system completed, the economy grows, GDP, and so all the evidence that we present it shows that this this is what's good for the country. But what I discovered after a few years being in there, uh, perhaps because I've been in the Peace Corps, I've been on the other side, is that in fact those statistics are very skewed toward the rich. So with a few rich families, the ones that own most of the industry and commerce in these countries, if those families are doing well, and they are because of the electricity, it looks as though the whole country is doing well, when in fact money is being diverted from education and health care, et cetera, uh, is to pay off these loans so the poor people are, and the middle classes are actually suffering. And and you know, Mikel, today we know that Something around 20 individuals. The numbers vary from from, from uh, 12 to 26, depending on what the stock market is doing on any given day. But but a very half a dozen individuals. I mean, excuse me, two dozen individuals or so had as much wealth as half the world's population. And in the last year, those those individuals gained about 12 percent. Uh, this is a good statistic. While half the world's population, the bottom half, lost 11 percent. So overall, you show a net gain of 1% in the world. That doesn't reflect the fact that 11% of the, that, 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 that half the world's population was was decreasing at 11%, while very few individuals were increasing at 12%. These statistics are very, very deceptive. And I began to see that as time went on. But at the beginning, I thought I was doing the right thing by trying to convince these presidents to accept these deals, because all the models showed that it was helping. And Omar Torrijos particularly of Panama, who, who, I, who I felt was a friend. Uh, Jaime Rodos was a little bit more aloof, uh, but Roldoos was very, very friendly and I spent a lot of time with him. He, he showed me this. He taught me that th- these things were wrong. And uh, that put me in a very difficult position because my job was to convince him to take the loans and also Roldoos. But I respected the fact that they were standing up to the system. They were not accepting these loans. At the same time, I feared for their lives because I knew that if they didn't buy into the these deals, something was likely to happen to them, either a coup to overthrow them or assassinations, because I knew what had happened to our of Guatemala and the end of Chile and other Latin leaders uh, along the line. So, yeah, I was in an extremely difficult position from a conscience standpoint once I began to see... The story behind the story that we were all told. And this story is still being told in business schools. You want to help a poor country, take out let it convince it to take out huge loans and build big infrastructure projects that may make a few foreign companies very wealthy. The Chinese incidentally are playing the same game around the world.
0: For our next clip, we have to go all the way back to episode thirty six of the Expat Money Show for our conversation with Jim Rogers. Jim has been a massive hero of mine for probably 20 years now. I've been following his investment advice, listening to him on different podcasts, and I've read every single one of his books. He really epitomized the idea of traveling the world and investing in frontier markets, what really resonated with me as a young man. So I am very happy to have interviewed him first in episode 36, as I said, but also to have him come back on our summit a couple of times and another announcement for you guys for our 2023 summit. Jim Rogers, my friend, has agreed to come back on the program to give his insights into next year's economy and what we can see. So make sure to check out that conversation later in the year at expatmoneysummit.com. So enjoy this clip on Jim Rogers' philosophy for investing and what he saw happening in the world six years ago and what is playing out today. So I want to talk to you a little bit about investing. I want to talk to you about your opinion for the future. So where do you think is hot these days to invest?
3: Well, I'd be very careful these days because there are going to be problems in the world in the next two or three years. It's been 10 years since we had a serious bear market in the U.S. anyway, and that is very unusual. I think it's probably the longest or one of the, the second longest period in American history. Without a serious bear market. So we're well overdue. Now, Mikhail, we don't have to have bear markets every four to eight years, but we always have. So, first one should be very worried. There are many reasons. You know, interest rates are going higher. Trade wars seem to be breaking out, potentially real war breaking out somewhere. So be very careful. I don't know when it's going to come. I wish I were that smart. But I do know that the next bear market is gonna be the worst in my lifetime. You know, in 2008, we had economic problems, market problems worldwide because of too much debt. Well, since 2008, Mikhail, the debt everywhere has gone up by many, many percent. So the next time we have a problem, it's gonna be very, very serious. You should be very worried. Everybody should be very worried, including me.
0: And do you think next time we have a big bear market in the United States, it's going to affect the rest of the planet, the same that 2008, 2009 did with the housing crisis?
3: Well, of course it is. The United States is the largest market in the world, the largest economy in the world. You cannot have the U.S. have problems without affecting other people. Now, not everybody, of course, is going to suffer. For instance, in China's filthy. And you know, a lot of people now cleaning up China. Those people... They don't care if Europe falls into the sea, they're going to be too busy going to work and making money cleaning up China because it's so filthy. But most people are going to be affected and affected badly in the next bear market because America is the largest economy in the world. Anybody who deals with America is going to be affected and then everybody who deals with them will be affected. So, yes.
0: Any safe investments that you think people would be able to put their money into these days that are going to kind of be a little bit more recession proof?
3: You should never use the word safe when you're talking about the investment world because there is no such thing as a safe investment, even cash if you say oh i see the world's coming to an end i put all my money in cash you have to be careful which kind of cash you know in 2007 a lot of people put their money into cash but they put it into icelandic krona and they got wiped out because it's the wrong kind of cash it's just don't ever use the word safe in the investment world
0: yeah that is a very fair point
3: the moment i happen to own a lot of U.S. dollars, U.S., like I've said before, is the largest debtor nation in the history of the world. So you're probably going to say, why, why do you have U.S. dollars? Because when the turmoil comes, people always look for a safe haven. And historically, the U.S. dollar has been a safe haven. So many people will put their money there again. Right? The U.S. dollar will go up. It will get overpriced as the turmoil comes. If the turmoil is really bad, it may turn into a bubble. At which point I hope I'm smart enough to sell my U.S. dollars and go somewhere else.
0: Any opinion about uh, the Great British Pound after Brexit?
3: Not with my money. First of all, I had some of my best experiences in life were in Great Britain. But having said that, Great Britain has huge amounts of debt right now with or without Brexit. Great Britain's going to have problems down the road. As a percent of its GDP it is very, very, very indebted. And, you know, Britain doesn't have much to sell to the world anymore. They've got North Sea oil but that's starting to slow down. If Brexit happens, uh, you know, the city of London, which has been a huge source of income for Britain, will dry up because many of the Europeans will take their business to Europe, to financial centers in Europe. So I'm not sure what Britain's gonna sell to the world. Got a big balance of trade deficit already. It's got huge debts. again, I don't like saying any of this because some of my best memories in life were in Great Britain, but I have to face facts.
0: So any advice for people at the moment then in the investing world? Not just at the
3: moment, but always don't listen to me. Don't listen to people on the internet or on TV or in the newspaper. Don't invest in what you yourself know a lot about people who invest in hot tips or take advice from others nearly always lose money because you know, they don't know what they're doing. And if something goes wrong, they don't know what to do. And having heard some guy on the internet say, buy X. You can't call him up and say, what do I do now? And you don't know what to do. So you nearly always lose money listening to other people. The only advice that I would give anybody is stay with what you yourself know. Don't invest in anything unless you yourself know a great deal about it. And then at least you're less likely to lose money. But listening to other people is going to be a terrible thing. I've told you some of the things I'm doing. I can tell you others. But again, I urge people not to pay too much attention unless they want to say, oh, I think I'll do a lot of homework on that myself.
0: Yeah, that's a very fair point because you have quite a big background in investing. The first book I read from you was Hot Commodities and listening to that advice, and I think my timing was completely off, I actually lost a lot of money not following your advice that you've just given me right now, which is understanding the market myself. So that was kind of in my
3: earlier investing days. I'm going to say it again, Miguel. Don't listen to anybody except yourself. (laughs) And if you yourself don't know what to do, then don't do anything. Just wait. Wait until you find something to do. Everybody listening to this uh, program knows a lot about something, whether it's cars or fashion or sports. I mean, just stay. Start with the the area where you're already interested. You'll know more about it probably than I do because it's your passion anyway. It's what you're always doing. So follow your own passions. Don't listen to me. Very good advice.
0: This next clip is with Grant Cardone on episode 75 of the Expat Money Show. At this time, I was living in Abu Dhabi in the world, so we were talking a lot about the Middle East, and he was actually coming over to visit Dubai at that time. In this clip, Grant is discussing poor person's mentality and getting into his real estate and his philosophy surrounding real estate. Talk to me a little bit first about a little bit more about the the poor person's mentality because I've heard in some of your programs where you give people shit because they're worried about uh, leaving their their lights on in their house or something and stuff like that stresses them out and it's like you shouldn't be worrying about that you should be out there trying to generate revenue
4: Yeah, you're worried about gravity man like like and I'm just telling people this because it trapped me like'm I'm not, I'm not telling people I'm not telling people they're wrong I'm telling people I was wrong mm-hmm. So I was worried about the electricity, dude. Like, li- literally, I bought a house in La Jolla, California. Uh, and I'm like, oh, my God, it was $850,000. It was the biggest purchase I ever made in my entire life. I moved in. It's La Jolla, California, dude. It's one of the best pieces of real estate in, in the, maybe in the world. Mm-hmm. And I was lucky enough to buy a house there. And I was like, hey, I need to see what the electric bill is. Like, it's completely insane, right? <laughs> like, well, it's, I don't know. I don't remember what it was, 60 bucks a month. Whatever, this is 20 years ago. So, so I'm like, oh my God, that's $700 a year. Like, what do you, I was worried, always worried about the wrong thing. And, and a lot of it is we're doing this because we're told by Wall Street and banks to, to worry like this. Uh, you hear CZ Orman and financial planners you know, I grew up where if you put more air in your tires, you would save gas. This is the <laughs> smart money tip of the week. Yeah. Okay. Get, get over 32 uh, uh, PSI in your tires and you will save. Save what, dude? And by the way, why are we always worried about saving? You know, we're always trying to save rather than create. And, and that's been the big switch for me. Okay, Uh, you know, the old saying, wherever I go in the world, I'm going to be in Dubai in three weeks and I'm going to be like, I'm going to be speaking to an audience. I'm going to be like, finish the statement. A penny saved is penny earned. Everybody knows it all over the world. It doesn't matter where you go.
5: Yeah.
4: The truth is, a penny is a penny. Yeah. It's a penny. Okay, a house ain't a dream. A house is a house Mm -hmm. with a 30 year mortgage and it never makes money. So, uh, uh, you know, having money in the bank, Ca- cash is king. These are all, these are all just lies mm-hmm. that have been perpetuated onto society to trap people. Uh, the, the, uh, the banks say that cash is king. Where, where did that come from? Who said that cash was king? Everybody's like, I'm storing cash up. But what, dude? It's worth nothing. Mm-hmm. Okay? It can be burnt. It can be torn. It can be lost like a lot of stuff can happen to cash. Pablo Escobar proved that cash was actually a liability. So so cash flow, by the way, cash flow would be, you know, the holy grail if we're talking about money. Like cash flow, cash moving in, new cash flow positive, particularly passive income would be uh much more kingly than cash itself. So these are just some things that I've discovered from studying money for the last 30 years, you know, to make a big change, you got, you got, you you don't, most people don't need new information. They need to strip away the lies.
0: So talk to me then some of those lies. Talk to me about some of those other things because these are really important stuff.
4: I'll give you one. Like, like um, there was a guy, I was in Los Angeles, a guy from the middle East. And and he said to me, he's like, uh, he's like, Hey man, I saw this video that you do about uh, homes or, liability is not asset. I'm like, well, yeah, they are dude. He's like, I can't like, he's like, I saw this video four months ago. Every time I think about you, I think about you. And I think about my uncle, my Mm -hmm. his his real uncle. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you're telling me don't buy a house. And my uncle's saying, Oh, you definitely got to buy a house. And I said, dude, a house, houses were built for banks. They weren't built for people.
5: Mm -hmm.
4: Okay. They, they, they built the, 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 um, like dog bones. I don't know that a dog actually likes a dog bone, but it's good for the pet store. (laughs) Okay. I think dogs would like the real thing, but you know, a Labrador will eat anything. Shit. You know, it'll just, just give it something to chew on. It'll start chewing. So, and that's the same thing with human beings. We, we, we go for dog bones, you know, who makes all the money on a house? The bank makes all the money on a house. You're lucky to make 1% on a house by the time you've been there 20 years. If you make 20% on a house over 20 years, you'll probably make it all in one year, by the way. Mm-hmm. In the other 19 years, it doesn't do anything.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: The bank made 6%, 5 to 6% every year.
0: Yeah, and then inflation gobbled up whatever your buying power is crap compared to what it was before.
4: Yeah, exactly. So there wasn't even a 20% gain on the house because of inflation, right? But, but you know, if I tell people, man, a house is not an asset, you should rent where you live and you should own property that you can create cash flow with.
5: Mm -hmm. Uh,
4: So these are some of the lies that we're told, you know, leave cash in the bank. How about the mutual funds? Diversify your investments. You need to be in a fund where you're in 120 different investments. Nobody has ever gotten rich like that. People conserve their wealth once they get rich by doing that, but you mm-hmm. don't diversify to create financial freedom. You diversify because you're going into protection mode. Mm-hmm. And when you're in protection mode, you're, when you're playing defense, you don't create. You don't grow on defense. It's impossible. You cannot put a score on the board playing defense. I mean, every once in a while, I guess you can, if, you know, if you intercept. But but most likely, you're not going to advance your position in life by playing the savings game, the retirement game, the ETF game.
0: So then how do you create this millionaire mindset, these things that you talk about? Like what, is, what can normal people do to start thinking more in these terms?
4: Start thinking about you can. You know,
0: the, the old adage about you can.
4: I think most people are trying to save because they, they don't think they can create massive wealth. Or financial freedom. Forget massive wealth. I mean, I don't even know what that number is. It's, it's, it's so enormous that like, but, but let's just go for financial freedom. Okay. Like, like if I'm talking to a group of uh, 500 people and I say, Hey, what is financial freedom? I'll guarantee you 99, 499 people out of 500 are going to be lost on what that number is. The exact number it would require for a person to have financial freedom.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: So how are you supposed to actually get that if you don't even know the numbers yourself?
4: Well, yeah, like, like nobody ever does the math. What are we doing math on? Budgets. A budget. A budget. Even the concept of a budget is a defensive strategy.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Okay? Johnny, Johnny's going to figure his budget out. How does he figure it? He takes, he takes his expenses, which he didn't do anything. Like expenses are something that happened to you. I bought a car. I rented an apartment. Uh, I went to the store, I got to eat, unfortunately, wish I didn't have to, it takes a lot of time and a lot of money. So I had to eat. I had to put uh, clothes on my kids. The, the government forces me to send my kids to school. So I have to fund all those things. That's the budget, but mm-hmm. people are putting their attention on the wrong part of their income statement, which is their income.
5: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
4: They're doing a budget statement and I'm doing an income statement. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, how much income do I need from how many different sources Uh so so that I can fund all activities? In fact, fund the life I want, not the budget mm-hmm. I have, right? The budget's a trap. So how much money do I need to create? And And by the way, I don't need the money. I, it's not like I have the money. Nobody starts with the money. I need mm-hmm. to go out and get, who's going to pay for this jet? <laughs> somebody else I don't have the money to pay for a job. Oh. Right. If somebody else can fund that activity if that activity is good for me and good for them. How do I raise money for a charity? All this money, all money comes from other people. You know, they built Dubai on other people's money.
0: Yep, true. Absolutely.
4: And other people's money doesn't mean it's a scam or a scheme or, or, or banks are involved. It means I go I built my real estate business. We have over a billion dollars worth of real estate today, maybe 1.2 billion dollars. I built that on other people's money. When I tell people that, I'm like, what does it mean that I built my, my real estate in my real estate empire on other people's money? Uh, well, you raise money. Oh, you raise the money at Cardo Capital. That right? I said, no, that's not other people's money. Other people's money was when I was 30 years old, knocking on doors, selling my services to a customer. Mm-hmm. Convincing him to buy my services and give me $3,000 for my services, I delivered the services. I kept the three grand, lived on part of it, and took the the, the, the $1,000 that was left over and bought real estate with it. That's what I mean by other people's
0: money. But so when you bought real estate, you didn't just go out there and buy a one-bedroom apartment as soon as you could... Get enough cash for it didn't you save up and then when you went in you went in heavy
4: yeah so i bought i made a mistake my first deal was a mistake i bought a one unit property it was two bedrooms uh, i think it was two bedrooms. joe it was uh dollars. i put three grand down i bought it on a budget dude mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i bought what i could afford now now i'm just I'm, I'm just gonna take a moment for everybody to understand this just let it sink in i bought what i could afford Buying what you can afford does not mean you bought the right thing, particularly when it comes to investing, right? Uh, A piece of real estate is going to be something you own a long time. A strawberry is going to be something you need to eat this week. So look, I got real estate that lasts longer than most marriages last. Like, I I could have some of this stuff 30, 40, 50, hundreds of years, particularly people in your part of the world understand this because that part of the world is older, maybe Mm -hmm. not where you live today, but... You go to Japan, they think about 300, 400 years, man. So when I bought that first property, I bought it because I had three grand. I put that down, told the bank I was going to live in it. I didn't. I never intended on living in it. I intended to rent it. Mm -hmm. I rented it to two sisters. I was making a couple hundred bucks a month, thought I was going to be a king. I got it. I'm the guy. I'm the man. And then they moved out and the man wasn't the man anymore. (laughs) The man was the bitch. Because now I'm terrified. I'm like, damn, I got a payment and I don't have any renters. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, like in four months into being in real estate, I realized, oh, dude, one door doesn't work. I'm dependent upon one renter. Mm-hmm. So I sold that deal and then went and started researching what I didn't understand. I spent three years shopping real estate every weekend, every night, every time I had a free second. Probably the most valuable education I ever got was those three years. It has been worth hundreds of millions of dollars to me. Might, might end up making me a billionaire. Gonna make my kids a billionaire for sure. Because every yes. week for three years, I shopped, looked at profit and loss statements, looked at deals, went through deals, called brokers, talked to people. Uh, and, and, and while I was looking and learning, I was accumulating cash for my business.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: And that cash would sit in the bank, even though I hate money sitting in the bank, it was sitting there with a purpose. I was basically storing it. And then when I bought my first real deal, I put $350,000 down on my first real deal. It was a $2 million property. And I think that first deal made me three or four, maybe $5 million.
0: This next clip is from Mark Faber in episode 220. This is a more recent clip, but we've included it in this one because we are happy to announce that Mark Faber will be a speaker at the Expat Money Summit 2023. So I am really excited about this. I have been a big fan of Mark's for a while. He is an incredibly smart individual, and I really like a lot of those work that he's doing in Asia. You guys can grab a ticket for the Expat Money Summit at expatmoneysummit.com for free at the moment. We might be changing this up. But enjoy this clip as Mark talks about his investment philosophy, particularly at certain points of time with the Asian markets and the conflict which is going on in Russia. Now, do you have a lot of your investments? Are you really focused on the Asian markets still? Or are you having more of a global perspective these days?
6: I have a global perspective, but since I live in Asia, I have more knowledge about the Asian markets and the investment scene. Then I would have, say, about Brazil or the Russian market or the Middle Eastern markets. I have some investments in Europe and some in Canada, but mostly the portfolio is in Asian securities, Asian stocks.
0: Well, we've seen the Asian stock market and a lot of the things in Hong Kong looking very, very cheap these days. They've really been beaten up. What's your opinions about some of the companies over there these days?
6: Well, every year I'm asked for some recommendations about uh, stocks. And this year I said that the most hated market, and as I said, I had an office in Hong Kong since 1973, and I lived until 2000 in Hong Kong, but I still uh, go back to Hong Kong from time to time. But I've never seen the mood. and internationally, the mood by international investors as negative about China and Hong Kong as it is now. And you can buy in Hong Kong property companies. In Hong Kong, there are five or six major property companies. They are owned majority by a family. So the families are relatively cautious with their money they have low leverage. So a major property company in Hong Kong would have a leverage of maybe 20% maximum. So they're relatively safe and they all sell at a 50% discount to the asset value. Now you may say, well, the property market in Hong Kong will go down. Yeah, it's probable that it will go down further. It has already eased a lot, but it will probably go down further. But... Even if it goes down, say, another 20%, if you buy assets at a discount of 50% and sometimes 60%, it's still, in my opinion, a reasonable bargain. And you have a dividend yield on many of these shares of, say, 6%. But last year, I recommended the company, it was Jardine Strategic. It was also listed, it was listed in Singapore, was selling at a 50% discount to a net asset value. And then the family is a Scottish family. They took it private and they still have two listed arms of the company. One is called Jardine Cycle. They own the largest car assembly plant in Indonesia. They have an investment in that company. And they also own an investment in the second largest cement company in Thailand. So selling at a 50% discount to net asset value. So I see in Asia, actually, quite a lot of shares that are not as cheap as they were in 2009, but they're reasonable value. Let's put it this way, reasonable value. One worry is, of course, that there is a war between the US and China. And then, obviously, it would have negative implications on the valuations of Asian stocks. I don't believe a war will break out anytime soon, but it, a lot of people believe that. That's why they're so negative about Asia, and that's why they're so negative about Hong Kong.
0: Well, my wife is from mainland China, and I've had a keen eye on these markets for a very, very long time. And I'm also looking a lot at these Hong Kong companies and a lot of the things like you mentioned, cement companies, oil companies, coal companies, everything like this between Hong Kong and mainland China. And I'm looking at the PE ratios and things are 3, 3.5, 3.8, something like this. And dividends are very high single digits or very low two digits. And I'm going, if we get this right, this seems like an amazing opportunity to be purchasing things for longer hold positions in my portfolio that could really stretch out and really pay for themselves quickly. My main concern, though, is it just pessimism about Asia in general at the moment? Or do you think that this is quite risky that we might have sanctions coming if China does cross the Taiwan Strait and invade Taiwan? Do you think that it's, there's going to be sanctions on all of the Hong Kong companies as well or just mainland China? Any insights from that side?
6: Well, there are already a lot of sanctions on mainland companies, some of which are listed in Hong Kong, say China Mobile or Sinopec or CNOOC. So the sanctions are already there on numerous companies. As I said, I don't believe the Chinese will invade Taiwan, but there is one case where conflict would be inevitable, and that is the case where the U.S. would build military bases in Taiwan and station, you know, like American troops in Taiwan. So. The Taiwanese people recently had local elections and it was a massive win for the KMT. Uh, This is the party of Chiang Kai-shek who fled to Taiwan and his grandson became now the mayor of Taipei, which is the largest city. Now, the KMT, they don't want any war with China. In fact, they want reunification, but the terms haven't been determined. But I'm just saying the Taiwanese people don't want any conflict. That's why they voted the KMT in. So I'm hopeful that the tensions can be resolved. But the problem is the US, they like to provoke things and lead to conflicts and so forth and so on. So I don't know, but... Let's put it this way. A conflict would be bad for all financial markets in the world.
0: In this final clip, we are joined by Congressman Dr. Ron Paul, who was a speaker at last year's summit and has an invite to come back and speak to us again. This clip is amazing. Dr. Ron Paul is talking about the tyranny of the last few years and the philosophy of ethics of freedom and how to have more freedom in your life. I hope you enjoy it. It's just so wild watching what's been happening over the last wow. couple of years and trusted people um, that you thought had your best interests at heart. you know there's there's actually a lot more to the story, which is really sad. Well,
7: see, third party payment is part of it. so it didn't start off with uh, in the States with all of a sudden we didn't have Medicare and Medicaid immediately, but the government started getting involved uh, you know incrementally until now, now it's so bad, you know, uh, if, you, if you're if an MD, practice of medicine, you call in a drug for somebody, it's it's recorded uh, in, a, in a government, re- uh, you know, computer somewhere. Every single thing that goes on, oh, we're protecting the patient. No, they're, they're protecting the pharmaceutical industry because you might be using hydroxychloroquine or, or ivermectin and boy, we got to stop you. Uh, they don't say, why don't we, uh, you know, in a free market, you'd have a debate over it. We used to have real debates in medical school and medical training. People would go back and forth on the pros and cons. Now you have to just uh, obey the government and uh, the FDA is not, not the patient's friends, it's the corporation's friend. And just think of the difference between getting an approval uh, for a drug and then making a lot of money, then find out the drug doesn't do what they say. Uh, and, and right now, Uh, We haven't heard the last of the complications that are going to be coming, you know, from the vaccines. And yet they're already lining up. And the people uh, this this would be a tough one on. the Are they stupid or what? Uh, But the people have, you you know, become more uh, submissive to it and accept it because they're still lingering confidence in the medical system. Uh, they're not going to hurt us, uh, but the medical system isn't the doctor who takes care of you and your kids, and they know you and you trust them. It's uh, it's the medical system is run by the FDA and Dr. Fauci. We we uh, Dr. Fauci's, you know, can you believe the epitome of him being the most highly paid bureaucrat we've ever have, and uh, and uh, I I think eventually history will straighten some of that out. But uh, I think there's going to be a lot of people that's going to suffer from the vaccines, especially these repetitive shots. And now we, we're all prepared to give shots to kids under five for a virus that won't even bother them. I mean, it is. That is powerful propaganda. And that's another story. Who controls the propaganda is really the the ones that, uh, uh, you, you know, uh, run the show. And that's that's where... Uh, I fear the most is uh, the internet is not uh, free enough for us to be able to get our message out. Matter of fact, we get uh, uh, we get canceled by challenging what was going on in medicine. And that to me is a, a real threat. Now, what, what we need is more freedom. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind and uh, everybody should make an investment in taking care of their family and their friends and being prepared for almost anything, protecting one's life and protecting uh, you, you, you know uh, one's ability to eat and take care of themselves. But the most important investment anybody can make is an investment in promoting the cause of liberty.
0: Absolutely. I fully believe in that. And that's definitely what we're doing here at the summit and your thoughts on the ethics and uh, medicine is very interesting. And I think, you know, we could probably spend a half a day discussing those, <laughs> I guess in our last couple of minutes here, I'm just kind of curious your opinion for freedom going forwards, anything that other people can do practical things in their lives to have more freedom in their lives.
7: Well, I see the, uh, the going ahead uh, for me personally, is to expose uh, who's interfering (laughs) with our liberties. And that is, uh, you know, government. I think there, I personally have a strong uh, uh, belief system. I I think there is a higher law. I think the higher law is very involved in the formation of our country. I still think there is a higher law, it's a higher spiritual law that, uh, you, you know, is not hard to figure. Even uh, it's been Judaic, it's been Christian, it's been on most of the major religion that you shouldn't lie, cheat, steal, or kill. <laughs> it's not complicated. And th- those are the rules and getting people to understand that and understand that you do have uh, a right then to live your life as you choose and you have a right to, uh, uh, you, you know, not uh, have to uh, uh, be badgered by the IRS knocking on your door all the time. So I think I think there's so much... But I think that uh, the one thing that has challenged us is the whole principle of uh, nihilism. People who say, well, Ron, that, that's crazy. You, you can't know the truth. No, nobody has a perfect handle on the truth. But you, there, are some, there are some things that you can use objectivity in defining uh, a principle. And so many of the religions re- recognize that. If somebody's not hurting your body, you don't have a right to kill them. Just think how much of that goes on. And that's, a, that's, a, that's increasing like crazy right now. So people and another rule that I think is important to emphasize in us trying to understand, because if we don't understand ourselves, it's hard to permit, uh, you know, uh, uh, spread the message. And that is what I call the Bastiat principle. Bastiat, who wrote the law, he said, look, if you and I can't do it, we can't go to our neighbor's house and we can't hurt people, we can't kill people. The government can't do that. And guess who's doing that all the time? I mean, we have uh, the technology now means that if uh, our enemy is over 7,000 miles away from us, we can send a drone missile there and uh, kill him as he stands on the corner. And, uh, oh, but he was a bad guy. He was a bad guy. Yeah, but his wife was standing beside him with a baby and it killed them too. I mean, there there has to be this whole thing of... Uh, there's no guilt by a nihilist, and that's why they can depend on more government power. Mistakes don't mean anything. Just cover it up and go on to the next thing. That's why I believe in a higher law, and the enemy is nihilism that says that you, there's no way of knowing what right, right and wrong is all about. And uh, if we give up, that, give up on identifying right versus wrong, uh, you know, we're going to have a, a messy system. You might just go and look at some of our inner cities, and you might realize what's going to happen.
0: There you have it. Episode 250 done a greatest hits or a best of with some of our bigger name guests that have come on the show over the last seven years. I hope you guys enjoyed it and I hope you guys will be tuning in every single Wednesday for the podcast. We have some amazing programs scheduled this year and the summit is coming up in October. You guys can grab a free ticket at expatmoneysummit.com. We will be welcoming back my friend Doug Casey, Jim Rogers, Mark Faber and a whole bunch more. So it promises to be the biggest and best expat conference in the world. That's at expatmoneysummit.com. Have a great week. I love you guys all and I will talk to you soon. Enjoy.